0: That's the introduction. Trish Lambert here with the Silmarillion Film Project, filling in for Dave, who is doing bedtime duty. He will be with us but just not right here at the beginning. But Unless I, but his children get us. the
1: better of him, which, you know, That's happens, right. I can tell which you. Happen. you know, That's right. Uh, That's happen. I can remember many of the, many the evening doing bedtime duty when, at, in the end, my only recourse was to go to sleep myself as a way to induce my children to go to sleep. So, you know, sometimes That's right. That's right. Sometimes you got to pull out the stops.
0: So that voice there, and the, the only thing we're actually seeing on screen at the moment is Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. Who I'm am assuming you? Oh, there we go. Yeah. All right. We have slides. We too. have other things to look at besides. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. So what are we doing tonight? We're go, actually looking at the whole season now, right? We've worked
1: that's through it. Yeah. Overview. Story. So we're going to do. we we're, we've we've pretty much uh, talked through almost. There's actually one little tidbit that's uh, which we can cover just at the very beginning. Um. Uh. But um. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so so we, we, we've, we're done with our kind of brainstorming mode, and now we're trying to put it together and make sure that we can fit it into sequences that are going to make sense and think through how we will present the whole season in our 13 episodes. So, yeah, big overview stuff tonight. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. So, yeah, but before yeah. I get going tonight, let me... Uh, go back because, of course, it is our fall fundraising campaign, raising funds for the annual fund 2020, um, our fiscal year uh, 21 annual fund. Um, many thanks to everybody who has donated so far. We've been doing very well uh, this year. We've, raved to, we've raised about $55,000, um, which is wonderful. I remember when that was way more than we raised for the whole year uh, before. Um, You know, back in the old days when, like, we were like, let's shoot for 30,000 this year. Um, But uh, anyway, it's just wonderful. We're, you know, we're involved now in the accreditation process. We are preparing to send off our second check to the accreditors uh, as we uh, continue through the process. So, you know, things are... Uh, things are, are are moving along, <laughs> expenses coming in, so this is what we're raising money to help cover. Um, and of course, in the context of the fundraising campaign this year, um, I've been talking about issues in higher education. I've been talking about, you know, because there's so many ways in which... I've been watching, high, you know, higher education struggle. Institution of higher of higher education having serious problems. Not just this year. I mean, this crisis of twenty twenty has been, um, you know, really what has kind of thrown this over the uh, the boundary to being really, really critical. Such that I, I really kind of can't keep to myself anymore, but a lot of these are problems that I've been observing for a really long time. Um, And of course, many of these problems that I've been talking about over the last few weeks are problems that Signum was deliberately designed uh, to circumvent. Some are are things that we, uh, you know, kind of have ended up circumventing kind of incidentally along the way. but uh, but I just I want to be sharing about you know many of these problems that higher education is facing and the ways in which uh, Signum is you know it has basically uh, overcome them and the way in which our model is uh, uh, is really kind of clearing these hurdles uh, as we move towards the future. So. Um, tonight is problem number eight problem number eight in higher education it's the third uh, that I've talked about this week during my broadcasts and my theme this week has been behind the scenes problems um, these are not like the the headliner problems that everybody talks about these are not the things that tend to make um, you know uh, headlines and stuff like that these are operational challenges for higher education behind the scenes, as I say. Um, I talked on Tuesday about the problem of top-heavy administrations in uh, higher education, and what a huge problem that is. and how much money, of course, is invested in this upper echelon of professional administrators in universities and the difficulties that that has kind of created. In, on, yesterday, last night, I was talking about the very, very old, so that's a new problem uh, that is new within the last you know, co- couple decades, which in the life of higher education is very, very recent. Uh, in uh, The problem I talked about last night was one that is centuries old. Uh, actually has its roots going back way, way back, Uh, and that is the sort of caste divide between faculty and staff, the division between faculty and staff, and the way in which faculty and staff are treated completely differently. There is this deep and fundamental inequity among the employee you know, panel uh, of all universities. And it's, in, I think, insupportable for the future. It's just not a tolerable situation uh, moving forward. Um, so I talked a little bit about how Signum has set itself uh, to eliminate that inequity um, from the whole structure uh, of what we do. Um, the, third, um, the third problem, the one I want to talk about today Is a problem which has only really been a a major issue here over the last few months, you know, but is, I think, going to be an issue that is going to be a challenge for the future. And that is distributed operations. That is to say, people working from home, right? Now, um, this, of course, uh, people working from home is one of the biggest changes uh you know one of the one of the the major things that's been happening of course in almost everybody's life here over the course of 2020 um it's also i think one of the most likely to be permanent changes you know of all the things that have happened all of the ways in which our society has changed over the last you know five six months the one that I think is going to be most enduring is going to be this trend of people working from home. I think that the workplace, the corporate workplace, will never be the same again. Um, <laughs> I don't know if this is a completely accurate metaphor, Trish. I don't know what you think about this. But um, we're, the whole like distributed operations, people working from home thing, and corporate America, to me, it kind of seems like, it's almost like, Maybe like a seven year old who doesn't want to get in the pool because it's cold. Right, Like, the pool is cooked, a hot day, and the pool feels really cold, so they're standing there on the steps like, oh, no, oh, I can't, no, I'm I'm afraid to go. And then somebody just comes in and pushes them, right? And they go in, and they're like, ah, whoa, ah I'm going to drown. And then they're like, actually, the water's really nice. And then they, you can't get them out of the pool afterwards? That, to me, that's like corporate America and working from home, right? I mean, so yeah, I many, so. so many... Uh, major corporations were like we are not you know a, a year oh, ago yeah. you know had been like we will never do that that is not how we right. operate and we can't There's no way will we'll, we'll lose productivity people yeah, pff, will absolutely. You know, it just can't be done we cannot countenance this yeah. kind of thing and then of you know or, or, or the technology right oh we don't have the technology and right. all of a sudden boom <laughs> right. Boom. Exactly. So uh, it was one of the things that was interesting to watch, you know, over the last five, six months, that all of the people who had been saying, like, this will not work. It will never work. It's foolish to do this. You know, it can't, are now like, well, now you have to show that you can make it work or else you're going to go under, aren't you? Uh, so they had to completely reverse themselves. But again, what a lot of people have... Um, um, what a lot of people have discovered, what all companies have discovered, is hey, actually, this works pretty well, doesn't so it? Yeah. It's not so bad. Yeah, the water's fine actually. <laughs> uh, and again, I, I just I, you know, I'm not saying that I think it's everything is going to stay exactly like it is now forever. I'm not saying that at all. But um, but I think it will never be exactly the same again. And I think that you know, people working from home is going to be a fixture of you know the workplace from now on. Um, And, uh, you know, as I said, whatever happens, uh, you know, the workplace will never be the same again. Now, uh, there are a lot of challenges here. Um, You know, of course, obviously, I do support people working from home. Signum has been a completely distributed organization from day one. So yeah, I do believe that you can run an organization uh, with people working out of their homes. But there are there are challenges, especially challenges when you're first converting to it, right? When you're first trying to make it work, Um, like remote learning, right? Like teaching online. It's not you can't just like try to do everything the same that you always done it, just online instead of in person. It, It doesn't work that way. You've got to think a bunch of things through. There are a lot of things within how corporations function that are premised on the on on assumptions based on the physical environment that companies have generally uh, operated on things like management structures um uh, patterns of communication how workers uh, are held accountable uh, for the work that they do operational habits that is like you know somebody goes down the hall and calls a meeting, you know, and says like, okay, everybody come down to the meeting room. We're going to talk about this. Like if that's the normal way you do business, well, that might not work exactly the same way when everybody's working from home. Um, So some adjustments are going to need to be made there. Again, so some of these things translate. You can do a lot of these things really well, uh, you know, online when people are uh, in home and in different area codes and things many of these things don't and you know it's there's a there's a pattern i mean i can again i can tell you from when signum began doing this you know you kind of start off when you first begin doing it by just trying to emulate things like trying to trying to to to, to parallel all of your normal functions and operations except you're doing it online right and then eventually as you're going through you're like hey actually um this is not anymore very efficient right uh, it was it was it was it was okay when we were all in the building together but that's not the best way to operate now and so you begin to find new and better ways you adapt uh, and you take advantage you not only learn to um, uh, to sort of overcome some of the challenges of operating in a distributed manner but you begin to take advantage of the unique opportunities that that provides you that things that you can do well that you can't do well when you're all working in a building. Um, It's a process. Now, higher education in particular faces some challenges here, right? In the short term, the challenge that they're facing is that they have to adapt. There are a lot of places that are uh, that are operating remotely. There's, you know, this this, uh, you know, and even campuses where people are back on campus, you know, they're still you know, a lot of people still trying to limit contact, right? Still trying to limit, uh, you know, on-campus populations and, you know, density of populations in buildings. So, you know, there's a lot of short-term adaptation that needs to happen. And adaptation Uh, Swift adaptation to changing circumstances, not exactly the traditional strength of higher education. So this is just it's a challenge and that challenge, of course, they share with many, many other people. But I think in the longer term, uh, there are some more significant challenges that higher education is going to face, which are not necessarily unique to them, um, but are very strong uh, uh, with them in particular. As I say, I think that there's gonna be a lot of ways in which the workplace in America is gonna be changing. And I think that one, is one of the things that um, many companies are gonna find is, gosh, you know, actually, we could increase our profit margin if we decreased our um, real estate, right? I mean, if we were spending less on this huge office building, you know, if we were even just had an office, had office space, a third the size of our current office space, we could save an enormous amount of money and that would be a great deal more efficient. Um, And so I think we're going to see a lot of businesses downsizing their physical space um, because they're not going to need all that physical space because a lot of people are going to be working from home. Um, And um, uh, so they can do that many businesses are going to be able to do that higher education. Well, that's going to be harder, right? Because higher education, one of the things that makes that makes most hired, that is brick and mortar higher education differ uh, from, a, you know, other corporate organizations is that their identities are, are kind of wrapped up in their buildings, right? They're going to be very few campuses. that are going to be like, okay, so now we have a bunch of people working from home. So let's, um, you know, sell off a third of the campus. Yeah, it's unlikely. It could happen in some places, but I think it's it's unlikely. You can't. They're not going to be able to downsize. Again, they are they're they're invested um, in those in that space in those buildings, uh, and so it's going to be hard. It's going to be much harder for them to like. You know, I say the workplace will never be the same, except the physical workplace on. University campuses isn't going anywhere. Right. Um, And so how are they going to do? You know, how are they going to adapt? How are they going to, are they going to just, you know, refuse to let anybody work from home because they've got to use their offices that they have, you know, because they have to use the space that they've got. Um, It's, um, You know, and then meanwhile, everybody else is going to be getting more efficient and they're going to continue having the same cost, high cost problems that they've been having, which has been contributing to many of their problems all along. Um, It's it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a real struggle for them to adapt to a future in which a greater percentage of folks across, you know, across industries um, are working digitally are going to be expect expecting. To work digitally, um, how are they going to p- compete for people? Even uh, in a sense, in the open job market, it's it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Um, Signum, of course, we've been through this process, right? We've been completely distributed from day one. We have faculty, staff, and as well as our students all over the country and the world. Um, and this, I think, is one of the things that makes us much more agile and adaptable than most. Uh, universities. We don't have that kind of uh, ponderous, uh, Marie, as you say, glacial pace of change uh, that is so common uh, in higher education. Um, we change pr- pretty quickly and pretty regularly because from the beginning we have we've known, like we've you know. Our whole existence has been an adventure, right? And that's kind of uh, the attitude with which we approach uh, things. We don't have a, this is how we've done things for the last 150 years. We don't have anything like that at Signum. But it's not just that we don't have long-standing traditions. Uh, it's that we have our, you know, our most well-established tradition is, you know, being prepared to reinvent ourselves if, you know, if we see better ways to do it, if we can find ways that we can improve our operations and uh, and do things better. Um, this kind of evolution and growth is how we roll. And that kind of flexibility, it's going to be crucial to success in the 21st century. Whatever happens, however long it takes and whatever happens with, you know, the pandemic over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, I don't know. But um, it's going to rec- there. There's more agility, more ability to change and adapt is going to be really essential. Um, and this is one of the elements that I think is going to be uh, in which higher education is going to be very deeply challenged uh, to um, uh, to uh, to adapt. Um, so anyway, so that is problem number eight that I wanted to address uh, today. Um, all right. So, uh, and again, thanks to everyone who uh, donates and uh, supports uh, Signum. And if you haven't yet, I certainly hope that you will consider doing so. Signum Univer- SignumUniversity.org/fund uh, is our website there, uh, where you can read all about the annual fund and about our donor reward program and all the things that we're doing uh, to help to keep programs like this running. But also, of course, our you know the 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 bigger things we are. Uh, Signum is really in this year stepping forward and, you know, working to take its place in the wider field of higher education because we can't, we can't keep ourselves to ourselves anymore. Um, We can see all the problems that higher education is facing. And I'm not saying we have like the only solutions to those, but we kind of, we don't have the problems that other (laughs) higher education institutions have. Our model uh, is... You know, by chance, if chance you call it, uh, uniquely adapted to the world that has suddenly come upon us here in 2020. And we want to share that with people. We want to help folks. Uh, we want to help students and we want to even help other institutions to see how they can adapt uh, to this world. Uh, so that's what we're sharing this year. But all right, let's get back to. Uh, film here. So the the first thing before I even go to the first slide, because the first slide is the first of our beautiful rainbow colored slides, and I don't want to get distracted by that because I want to touch on the one subject we didn't get to last time, which is Huan. Um, uh, this was an issue that was raised, I think, by Hakam on the discussion boards. Marie will correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, uh, that um, I. We need to have that. It, it, there is a clear sense in the Baron and Luthien story when Huon and his destiny—that uh, is, that he will not be slain except by the greatest wolf who ever lived—you um, uh, know that that that's well known. Like it's a it's a commonly known uh, across Valerian sort of thing. How does that happen? So uh, it is absolutely correct. We have to put that out there now, so that it's. You know, everybody knows that by season six, when we get around to that. Um, so, uh, okay, great, yeah. And Florian has also uh, um, expressed a lot of interest in this. Yeah, uh, Florian, really appreciate all your contributions. Actually, um, your uh, uh, your addition to our team here, and and also your you know discussions elsewhere, have been really valuable. Um, so. There were some suggestions about sort of this being overheard and stuff. Here's my impulse. I don't know exactly the mechanics of this, but let's see if we can kind of talk it through. My my impulse here, my impulse is to make Huan the Huan prophecy sort of parallel to I want to make it Glorfindel-like, right? Just as Glorfindel makes the prophecy about the downfall of the Witch King, right? I kind of want a similar sort of deal for Huan. Um, And I'm thinking of similar kinds of circumstances. That is like a foretelling comes upon someone at some point concerning Huan, right? And they they, they make the pronouncement, right? They state the thing that they are foretelling, you know, they're foreseeing. And it's overheard by many, right? Um, and I think we because one of the questions was like, how do the bad guys find out about this? Because the bad guys need to find out about this because Morgoth needs to start like, you know, the uh, the 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 wolf project, right? He's got to get you know in got to devote uh, you know a room uh, in his R and D wing to like you know generating the greatest wolf who's ever lived, right? Um, uh, so. Um. Yeah, yeah. So, so we can right, and Stephen exactly. Sauron also try attempts to fulfill uh, the prophecy. Exactly. So clearly, the bad guys need to know about this. I absolutely agree. So there were some suggestions about you know like ways in which uh, Thorin Gwethil, for instance, could overhear people talking about it, and we could do that. But I think it would be cooler for it to be a public pronouncement. Um, for this to be a pronouncement overheard because it's not, it's not like sort of meant to be a secret. Right. Um, and, uh, it, it can be, it can be so like the, um, it, it can be something which perhaps might've been better if the bad guys didn't find out about it. But again, it's one of those moments where a foretelling comes upon someone and they decree it in the hearing of many people and they just, they, you know, like they don't, it's not like strategic and everything like that. Um, uh, all we would need for something like that is an occasion. Um, I'm thinking about battle. Is there some kind of skirmish? What about, what about the battle with the stockade? Could Huan be? Cause I mean, Carinthyr comes down at the end, um, to help. And he's the one who speaks. All we'd have to do is get Keligorm involved as well. Carnanthyr would still be in charge, right? Caranthyr always thinks he's in charge. Um, uh, so Carnthir would still be the spokesperson and he would still be the one who'd be approaching Hollith, and she would he would still be the one that to whom she's saying, like, no, thank you, um, jerk. But uh but if Keligorm and Huon were there So, again, the circumstance that I'm thinking of, so forgetting the particular battle for now, what I'm thinking of is, like, on the battlefield, Huan does something awesome, right, on the battlefield, and um, someone just has to make a comment about, like, you know, how... um, uh, how awesome Huan is, and, like, either they can be like expressing concern for him, or... um, Or or even just saying, like, you know, gosh, it's, uh, you know, Kelegorm, it sure is a blessing that, you know, you have, you know, you have Huan at your side. Uh, And then somebody has the foretelling come upon them and say, yay, indeed, Uh, none but the greatest wolf, you know, none shall ever slay Huan but the greatest wolf who ever lived. Like, somebody just has to, just has to have the like, the prophetic impulse, right? It just it just comes across like it seems to come across across Gore at that moment with the witch king, right? He didn't like draw that up, you know. He didn't he didn't premeditate that. Um, he just like in that moment decrees it, right? Um, so, uh, um, anyway, yeah, I'm thinking. An occasion like that, and again it's it's spontaneous and it's on the battlefield, so there are bad guys there, right? So we just need somebody reliable, probably not just random redshirt orcs. Um Bulldog, maybe somebody, I don't know. But anyway, somebody who's there on the battlefield and hears the prophecy given uh and takes it seriously, which again that doesn't seem entirely impossible or unlikely, um, and uh, and brings it back. Uh, to Sauron or directly to Morgoth or whatever, both of them clearly need to know about it. Um, so when I say battle. I don't mean it doesn't have to be a big battle, like some kind of action, right? Some kind of um, that's kind of that's kind of what I'm what I'm thinking in. Um, Rhiannon asks, could it be during the escape attempt from Angband? Sure, yeah. No, I don't have any particular investment in where it is um i mean obviously it just it has to be somewhere where Kelly gorman huon could be brought in without too much contortion essentially um but um but yeah no i mean wherever you guys think is best if you can see a really uh, fun huon role i mean ideally it would be right after a time when huon has just like done something important, right? So that he has become for the moment, the topic of conversation among people, right? And that's when, as they are considering who on and his, who he is and where he comes from and his value and stuff that this vision of his destiny, you know, comes upon, uh, the person and they just out with it. Right. Um, now, um, yeah, uh well, so uh yeah. Um Nick is saying could it be overheard after the skirmish rather than during, like when speech might be audible. Yeah, I, yeah, no, I don't mean like in the din of battle exactly. Cause yeah, that'd be kind of hard to overhear. You could maybe do that in a Shakespeare play, but it's kind of hard to do that anywhere else, right? Um, yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. But again, the challenge is one of the reasons I was thinking about a battle. So there are two reasons I was thinking of a battlefield for this. Um, I, I was thinking prophecy, like that kind of foresight, cause I think that's, I mean, Clearly, that kind of foresight is going to be, I mean, it is a prophecy about him, right? So somebody has to have it at some point. And so it might as well be the most efficient thing for us to do is to have the prophetic um, declaration be overheard itself, right? Rather than they make it in private and then we have to have other people like saying, hey, dude, did you hear the prophecy about Huan?" and have that conversation overheard? It's just a little less efficient, right? Um and it's a little bit cooler. It's a little bit more dramatic too for the original prophecy to be overheard by somebody uh, among the bad guys uh, who is really impacted by it. it Who's like, "Whoa, that dog is bad news." Um, but um, okay. So, do I? Maria's asking, uh, "Am I wanting Kelligorm to have the prophetic impulse?" Not necessarily. No, no, it doesn't have to be Keligorm. Um, I think it could be somebody completely different. Rhiannon wants to know if it could be Finrod. I'd have no problem with it being Finrod. Finrod seems to me a good candidate. Um, I mean, almost any Elf Lord is a candidate for, you know, prophetic insight. Um, it doesn't have to be one of the major characters, but I think it absolutely could. It's going to depend on the circumstance. I mean, obviously, a lot of it's going to depend on the circumstances of where it happens and when it is, right? Um, so, I mean, if it's if it's up in the north during the um, escape attempt from Angband. Maybe this involves, you know, Fingon. And, you know, so like maybe Fingon makes it, or, you know, I don't know if it's gonna be over, like again, maybe it's uh, somewhere around the action surrounding the stockade battle and the driving off of the orcs who came in uh, for the stockade battle. Um, I guess that's at least over, That's that takes place, you know, in the greater Feanorian realm. Uh, area right, so again, I can imagine uh, geographically getting him there. Um, uh, Marie says it needs to be an elf. Yeah, I think it does, or else people aren't going to take it as seriously. Like if some random human says it, is like even if Sauron himself overheard, is he going to take that seriously? I don't know. You know, like, I I kind of think it has to be an elf. I, I kind of do. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Florian says, I think Huan should already at least kind of know uh, since he fell under the doom of the Noldor, but he doesn't have to talk about it to Kelegorm. Yeah, um, I think Huan should not be surprised by this. Like, he doesn't talk often. um, And and not at all yet. Uh, So he... um, is you know he can't be the one to declare it you know he's not going to share this his own self um but he i think that we can sort of show um i mean i think it'd be even cool and marie i think this is one of the reasons why i was kind of thinking of it not being kelegorm is that when the prophecy is declared huan's response like he responds to it with a, a sort of confirmation right? Not like a cheesy, like wagging and barking his tail, jumping up and down kind of, con- yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that that prophecy is dead on. I'm going to be killed by the greatest wolf ever. Um, but rather, just like, Kelligorm can know, Kelegorm, uh, you know, I don't think necessarily can speak to Huon. Um, I, I, I say that mostly because Huon's communications are kind of a big deal, right? Um, but Huan, he certainly has a Good rapport with Huan, um, and I think that he would basically say he would be able to see that Huan hears and acknowledges that prophecy. Essentially, that it's it's really kind of not um, not news to him. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, we can we can see. Uh, what about Aol? I don't. Is he ever going to meet Huan? I don't know that, I mean, yeah, I guess Huan can be with him when he meets Kelligorm, but that's uh, no, that con- that's not the right context at all. First of all, no bad guys are going to be able to overhear that, or at least it would be a strain. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephen Covers says, what's that, Huan? Timway is stuck in a well? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I you know I don't not Ael, not Ael, um, and the reason I say not Ael is that I don't want to. That seems to me a confounding variable in the Huon situation, right? I want Huon's destiny to be. I, what I mean by confounding variable is it means so it adds the extra dimension of Ael's own like at least his malice, right? So if Aeol says it, it's going to sound like a curse, even if he doesn't mean it as a curse, even if he's not actually cursing Huan, it's going to sound like he's cursed Huan to die. Uh, Or at the very least, I would think that many of our viewers could be forgiven if that's the conclusion they came to, right? After seeing Aeol declare, you know, speak the death of Huan. Whereas if a friend and ally and clear pro-Huan supporter says it, they're just... Making a prophetic declaration, right? Um, so yeah, I, I don't think um, uh, I don't think that we want Aeol doing it. Um, it could be one of the fan-orians. Um In some ways, it feels to me more right for it not to be a Feanorian, in the sense that like the person who makes it is not a person who hangs out with Huon all the time, right? And so in one way, it's like This person encountering Huon under these circumstances, seeing Huon, not necessarily for the first time ever, you know, but like, it's not normal for them. So when the person, you know, that's one of the reasons why they're sort of struck by it, you know, in that moment. Um, If you see what I mean by that. Um, So... Yeah, Florian says, Aeol can stick to cursing his son. Well, that's exactly it, Florian, right? I mean, cursing folks and uh, uh, and uh, announcing their deaths is a kind of thing that Aeol does, and I don't want to lump Huon's prophecy into into that. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, Finrod, Finrod seems a really good uh, candidate. I could see Fingon. I could see Fingolfin, right? I could see, um, you know, like uh, Angrod or Aignor, Um and it could be a Feanorian. Um, I could see Mithros doing it. Mithr- or Maglor. Maglor would be my top choice if it were a Feanorian. Mithros a close second. Um, I wouldn't want it to be any of the sketchy guys. You know, that is, Curufin or Kelgormer or, uh, or, or um, uh Yeah. Yeah. It could be Galadriel. Hey, Dave is here making suggestions. Hang on a second. Hang on, bring Dave in. Hey Dave. Welcome.
0: I shall I shall speak it yes. about <laughs> Galadriel.
1: Galadriel, yes. I, I know she's a great candidate, of course. The question is when she would encounter Huan. Um it's possible. It could it could happen. It could work. Um I hadn't thought that far along. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, and it it has to be like, the person has to encounter Huan and it has to be at a moment and an occasion when like Huan has just like drawn attention to himself, right? In some way. And, and again, there have to be bad guys present who can take news of the thing back or else we have to go out of our way to find another occasion on which they learn of it. Um, so anyway, any, uh,
0: any Doriath folks who might be candidates,
1: like a like a Beleg, I could see Beleg doing it. I could see Beleg or Mablung making this kind of a declaration. Um, uh, Beleg would be my top choice among the uh, among them, but they're very minor characters this season, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, getting them uh, in. The right place at the right time would be even harder, I think. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, uh, Stephen Melian? Cover says maybe Kelleborn is impressed with Huan and declares no one could possibly defeat this magnificent creature, and then Goadriel corrects him. Um, <laughs> none except the greatest wolf who ever lived. Um, yeah, yeah. What about Melian? Um, well, certainly she could do it, but she's not going to leave. Like who not going to go to Menegroth and she's not going to, and anyway, the nowhere million is going to be, is possibly going to be a place where a bad guy can overhear it. It's the biggest challenge there, I think. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I think, um, I think that lots of good, uh, lots what of good we, possibilities there.
0: What if we played, what if we played telephone where, uh, where <laughs> Melian declares it in, in her court. Uh, someone else overhears it
1: and becomes a, a,
0: a rumor
1: that gets right. spread. We <laughs> just show, show rumors spreading. Yeah. Um, it turns out originally she'd only said a wolf, you know, and then like eventually it was like the greatest wolf who's ever lived. Yeah, no kidding. No, I, I do think that the prophecy thing Yeah, no, Melian is not going to meet Huan, I agree. Um, That seems... She's too sedentary, Melian, to meet Huan. He's, uh, you know, she's a moss gatherer, and he's a a stone doomed to rolling, so uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But, um, okay. Let's see Stephen Cover... Ask the cheerful question: Could one of the good guys overhear it and then later get captured and get the information <laughs> tortured out of him? Yes, that's a theoretical possibility. Um, yes, uh, you can tell. You can tell a like a diehard film film person. Um, <laughs> can we get one of the good guys captured and tortured? Um, the possible, possible, but it's a. Uh, Complicated chain of events, and my idea is to simplify it into one, you know, scene essentially. Um, But um, anyway, okay, all right, so.
0: What if Melian declares it in court, it spreads as a rumor, (laughs) then one of the people who heard the rumor gets captured, tells it to his (laughs) cellmate, and then that person gets tortured?
1: You're right, that is the most efficient possible way to do it. I think so.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you agree.
1: Yeah. Hard to improve on... <laughs> hard, hard to improve on uh, the efficiency of that chain of events. Um, yeah. No, Rhiannon is saying we need a film film off show just about Huan. Hard to argue with that, actually. You know, we have like a couple seasons of Huan, the early years, right? And, oh man, yeah. No, there's... Um, um absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um Yeah. Okay, anyway. Um Yeah. Okay. Um cool um then so that's it that, that was that was the last thing I want to talk about let's 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 go into the big topic of today which is season outline so the first of our awesome graphics here is the critical path of all of our plot threads uh, from uh, from this season um, so let's kind of look at the overview of these here, and then we'll be looking in particular at how these can be done in particular episodes. So first we have the Aravel thread. Aravel, her discontent, her choice to leave Gondolin, her passing through Nandangortha, being separated from her companions, her meeting with Aeol, her marriage with Aeol, the birth of Maeglin, uh, and uh, like increasingly uncomfortable uh, and unhappy domestic situation. Aeol uh, and Maeglin visiting the dwarves as an excellent opportunity to bring the dwarves into it, as we were talking about before. And then, of course, Maeglin and Aredell returning to Gondolin. Uh, and uh, we have a little side note there of Finrod getting the Naoglamir from the dwarves of Nagrod uh, being a kind of a spin-off of the Aeol and Maeglin visiting the dwarves thing. Okay. Uh so that's the first thread. And this I know has been a, a source of debate, like exactly um exactly how we um win the pacing, basically, for the L story. And we'll 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 look at that as we get more deep into the uh sort of episode by episode discussions there. Um and now we've got um, the human ones. So we've got the, the, the Beor line, which is sort of the the longest one, uh, as the plot line. I mean, that's sort of the longest plot line. We've got uh, Beor meeting Finrod in episode one, uh, House of Beor moving to Nargothrond, the death of Beor. Uh, and then we've got the time in which the House of Beor is not doing all that much in Nargothrond. Uh, and then of course Andreth, Coming in young to the leadership of the people of Beor and leading the people out to Ladros, uh, Andrith falling in love with Aegnor, uh, Bari here then taking over the leadership of the House of Beor in time for most of the House of Beor to be destroyed in the Dagor Uh So we've, that's the the Beor thread um, through this. We also have. Uh, after the initial part of the House of Beor, right, after the death of Beor there, we've got uh, three things going. We've got the stockade battle. Uh, so that is the people of Haleth come over, and then they get have the difficulty with orcs, hence the beginning of Haleth's heroic story. Um, and then at around the same time, we've got the green elves in conflict with men. We decided for that to be the future House of Hador uh, that they are conflicting with. Um, and, um, uh, and so we, the, those two things, the stockade battle and the green elf conflicts with men those are basically happening while the house of Beor is already settled down into Nargothrond um, Hador goes off to serve and so Haloth goes through Nendungortheb, Hador goes off to serve um, uh Sauron impersonates Amlach right, all of that stuff is happening leading up to the council of Estelad, the decision about what that other people is doing. Um, are they going to stay, are they going to fight the elves? Are they going to leave? Are they going to uh, uh, ally themselves with the elves? Um, and of course that comes to a head there at the Council of Estelad and Hador wins, right? The pro-elf faction led by Hador uh, wins uh, and th- thus the people who remain become the house of um, the House of Hador and move uh, to the north after this. And so that happens at around the time when Haleth is finally working to settle down with her people in the forest of Taglin and she's killing Tevildo um, at around that same time. Uh, then after that, of course, we have the double wedding, the intermarriage of the houses of the three uh, houses of the Edain, um, uh, and that comes at about the time Andreth moves the house of Beor to Ladros. So um, that's the overall shape of the human plot lines. Uh, through uh, through the season, um, at the bottom there you can see the bad guy plots. <clears throat> Sauron putting uh, putting a spell on captive elves. Um, you know, stepping off to the side to impersonate Amlok. and trying. You know, he's trying to stir up trouble between elves and humans. This is his big plan. <clears throat> uh, Rogren and Aniel escape uh, from uh, um, uh, from from Angband, both of them need to get out for different reasons, Uh, Hador uh, is going to help and that's how he is going to establish himself uh, in the service of Fingolfin, uh, is by helping with the escape of Rogren and Anil. And then of course we've got Thuring spying on Anil and um, gleaning information from him in a super creepy vampiric kind of way. okay uh so yeah as marie points out Arvel's story um you'll notice that there's a lot of interlace here among all of the other stories um lots of arrows connecting boxes here um with the exception of the Arvel story the Arvel story is almost complete the only connection between the Arvel story and the rest of them is that Arvel has to get through nandungortheb in one direction before Hollith and her people start going through in the other direction, right? Or we don't want to have a traffic jam, a plot traffic jam in Nand Dungortheb. So um, Hollith's trip westbound through Nandor Nandungortheb is uh, serves as a, a bound on Aradhel's story. Her story has to uh, she has to have met Ael by the time Hollith and her people are coming through, essentially, um, or else yeah. it's not going to work.
0: The only way non-Gorthep could get worse,
1: exactly. A traffic it's worth, jam, it's yeah.
0: A traffic jam,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I guess you can say, you know, out there in LA, Dave, that the at least you don't generally have giant spiders attacking during traffic jams. So that is a, true. There's an upside. A giant spider probably, on the four hundred five.
0: <laughs> probably, probably days where people would. People might might appreciate that, like breaking up the monotony.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when you're though though, when you're hoping for an attack by monstrous giant spiders just to break up the monotony, it might be time to reexamine your life choices. At that time, I, I, <laughs> I'm just. True. Yep, that is know, true. I just I just I'm just thinking. You know, just yes, just brainstorming. Which
0: which kind of which is sort of what Haloth people are doing.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, I like the way
0: you brought that back. That was yeah, very stylish. That was good.
1: That was good. Uh, yeah. Um uh yeah, so uh <laughs> Brie Melvin says that twenty twenty isn't over yet. There's there's still time for giant spiders <laughs> on the highways. So you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's it seems perhaps like the manifest destiny uh, of uh, late twenty twenty here. Um but anyway, okay. So um the, oh yeah, the la- the last uh, thread that I didn't mention here because it only comes in there at the end is the Fingolfin plotline. That is the whole elves and do we attack or not. So Fingolfin's warning and the question about do we break the peace and attack Morgoth and if so, how? That's going to come in towards the end leading to uh, Fingolfin's big push, which of course is going to culminate in his... One-on-one duel uh, of Morgoth after the Dagor Bragalach. So, um, and and again, the t- so timing-wise, as far as all of these other events are concerned, certainly as far as the other events with which they're interacting with the human events and stuff, um, we're going to be getting uh, Fingolfin's warning and his um, uh, his the the discussions among the elves at the time when the House of Beor is already up. In Dorthonian and uh, the House of Hador is in the north. Like basically, the 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 pieces are essentially going to be set on the board for the Dagor Bragalach when Fingolfin brings that up. We'll have still stories developing, like the people of Beor adapting to um, uh, to life in Dorthonion, and we're going to have the you know the the weddings and and. Uh, you know, the establishment of those houses and development of characters like Barahir and young Baron and, 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 and folks like that. Um, not to mention the Hador line as well. Um, so yeah, so we'll get all that stuff. And of course, Anil and Thor and Gwethel kind of, uh, weaving around through there. Um, so truly once Arthel clears Nandun Gortheb, um, the rest of her story is almost perfectly independent of everybody else, um, uh, and all the rest of the action. I mean, clearly she needs to get back into Gondolin prior to uh, um, uh, prior to the Dagor Bragalock, I think. Um, what's that glow on the horizon, My-Glen? Um But um, uh, so yeah, I mean, they need to be they need to be back in uh, in Gondolin by then. Um, but. Um, Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is the big overview to keep in mind. So to keep, you know, as Maria is saying, one of the main points of this slide here, uh, is to make sure that we can kind of keep the, the sequence clear in our minds, what needs to happen before what, uh, and the overall shape of the season as we think through and talk about, uh, the events themselves. Here's, uh, a little more detail on timeline constraints and this comes to a lot of the the changes we've been talking about making um you know some of the contractions and uh, and things that we've been discussing so here's the working backwards from the timeline so we start with the dagar Lock right at the end of the season which is first age 455 uh the double wedding right this, you know so the that that time of intermarriage we're looking at 435 to 440, we need enough time uh, for the offspring of those uh, of those uh, weddings to be active, right? We can't have Baron as a babe in arms, for instance. You know, at the Dagor Lock, that ain't gonna work. Um, so we need to have the double wedding by about 440 at the latest, because then the kids born after the double wedding can be, you know, at least teenagers uh, by then. So. Um, the birth of bari here therefore has to go back to uh 405 to 415 somewhere in that range um and the death of Haleth needs to be after first age 406 um so that the move to to dorthonian uh from the house of Beor, um happening between 406 and 420 so that they can be in place in time for the double weddings. For Having them there by 420 also means that we, 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 we get them a whole generation. I mean, they will have been living there for 30 years before the battle comes. More than 30 years, you know, 30 to 40, 50 years even, um, prior to the battle. So they've had time to adapt uh, to, you know, an active and outdoor culture uh, now and to make some of the changes that, Andreth foresaw would be necessary and good for them to be making. Um, We need Galdor to be born. That is Hador's son Galdor, um, the father of Hurin and Hur. He needs to uh, come in uh, um, between first age 400 and 422. Again, just in order for uh, people to be the correct age. Um, Hurin you know, needs to be around, um, so we need to get his his dad born early enough. Um, uh, the birth of Andreth, uh, to make sure that... Um, uh, yeah, uh, Marie says that she wants Haleth alive at the double wedding. Um, I'd be totally fine uh, with Haleth alive at the double wedding. I don't... I don't think I have anything invested in Haleth's death. That is, I don't... I don't remember having specific plans either to say Halith must die in this way or at this time or anything like that. So I I think I'm willing to, um, uh, I think I'm willing to put, um, his, her death wherever, wherever we want it to be. Um, so long as, I mean, so long as it fits with her, you know, her time span, her age span. Um, Okay. We've got, um, right. The birth of Andreth. She's got to be born no earlier than 380. If she's born in 380, then that means she's 75 at the Dagor Braggalock. I think, see, I'm inclined to go early with her. Um, uh, 400 is given as the later bound, uh, of, uh, when Andreth could be born. That only makes her 55 at the time of, uh, of the Dagor Bragalach and And I don't know. I like I said, I, I think um I think we want her born a little sooner than that. I think I want her older than that, essentially. It's um I think it's important that by the time um by the time we get to um Yeah, by the time we get to the Dagor Bragalach I think she should be Aged. she should be elderly, not just you know um uh, not just not young anymore she should be she should be elderly, i think um yeah, yeah, um okay, so Marie, you're thinking having her born at three eighty nine for an age of sixty six that's that's on the young side of when I would want her to be there, but um yeah. Well, Stephen H. I'm not really sure it's true that 60s is elderly for that time. Um, 90s. These
0: are long-lived, aren't they? Yeah, kind of long-lived. Yeah, they're not. Not
1: like you know Elros style long-lived, right, but right. Um, but but yeah, I mean the several the first few generations like of the of the House of Beor live into their 90s. Um, uh, so I don't think they would consider a 60 year old man. Um, old. Uh, I mean, again, he's not young anymore. So you're
0: thinking like eighties.
1: Well, I mean, I think it would be fine for her to be, let's see. So Marie, tell me about why, why we don't want her born earlier. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, why don't we want her born earlier? Why can't... Because in theory, I would think, as far as her own age is concerned, without thinking of other concerns, um, as far as her age is concerned, we could have her born as early as 360, right? I uh, mean, 360, she'd be 95 at the Dagor like, and that's elderly right but i mean and that's that seems to me like the early bound i mean to have her much more than 95 i think would start be starting to push it um but you know she she's from a long-lived family right um i think that, that could theoretically happen um but um uh, right yeah okay that's what i was thinking about the timing of her romance with ignor that's the problem right okay cuz if the move to darthonian doesn't happen until 406 she does, yeah, she needs to be in like her 20s or 30s at latest. At the time she's romancing Aignor. Yeah, agreed, agreed. That is the bound. Okay, so yeah, if that's the line that we can walk, but I'd say earlier. Um, uh, I'd say earlier, if possible. Um, and then we could have the move to Dorthonian be a little bit earlier as well, on, on the early end of its frame. Uh, its framework there, too. So if Andreth is born, say, 380, right, put her at the earliest limit there. If she's born in 380, um, that puts her at exactly 75 at the time of the Dagor Bragalach, which is cool. Um, And the move to Dorthonian, if that also happens on the early end of its time frame, so if it happens in, like, the late four aughts, right, so, like, somewhere between 406 and 410, um, that still puts her in her late twenties when she meets um, uh so that could um, that could happen. Um, okay, so you're supposed to so born in three eighty five, which is seventy at the time of the battle. Moved to Dorthonian in four ten, uh, so that puts her twenty five. Okay, yeah, I can live with that. I can live with that. So she's 25 when she moves to Dorthonian. That also gives the House of Beor a full 45 years in Dorthonian prior to the Dagor Bragalach. So again, you'll have a whole generation of warriors who will have grown up, you know, been born in Dorthonian uh, and, um, uh, and, you know, born and raised on the front lines. So uh, the change will certainly have had plenty of time to take root uh, then. Everyone who remembers the soft life in Nargothrond will be elderly uh, by the time the Dagor Bragalach rolls around. So that's fine. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Marie says that that mean- Bari here, who would be four, a four-year-old child at the time of the move, um, so he's not even gonna really going to remember Nargothrond, right? Um, um but then he's 49 at the time of the battle yeah i like that Barahir here being 49 so that means Barahir here dies at age what 54 or five years gap right um five years as, as an outlaw um so uh yeah yeah interesting Bri- brianna says uh wizened uh 70s plus uh a, a warrior fan art may happen tonight yes i i Haleth is going to be a wizened warrior woman at whatever age she lives to, right? So, yes. So, um, Haleth at the age of 70, you would still not cut in front of her in line, right? I mean, there's no question about that. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That works for me. That totally works for me. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Maria, I'm thinking how still gets around at the age of 81. No question. Yeah. And again, I'm still thinking that, um, uh, you're, you're, you're still gonna, um, you're still gonna watch what you say around her at that age. Definitely. Cool. Um, Okay, so continuing to work backwards. So the council then, the uh, the council at which the House of Hador's fate is decided um, happens 380 can happen anywhere between 380 and 405 because um, this gives, of course, time for the House of Hador to move up north uh, prior to presumably the birth of Galdor, right? That would all be happening. Um, that whole line would then be established up there in the north. Uh, so that makes sense. Um yep. Yep, that works. Uh and then uh this also, by the way, establishes th- one of the other things I like about that, about the council happening uh, uh you know, at at around the same time that Andreth is being born in Nargothrond. Um the thing that I like about that is that it, it gives a it gives a, a clear kind of sequence, right? Um the house of Haleth is the first one to decide its destiny, like to decide where where it's going to go and what it's going to do. Right. Then the council happens and the House of Hador decides its destiny. Um, and then last as it was first. Right. Uh, you know, the House of Beor is first in and they decide their destiny first, right, and head to Nargothrond. But now their reconsideration of their choice and their move to um comes in after, you know, clearly after, like a couple decades after that it has been established. So we can even have like news of the council can be, would certainly be brought to Andreth and to the others of the house of, uh, you know, to Adenel and to, to Andreth both um, in Nargathron by Finrod, right? So that they would know what their other kindred are doing and the role that their other kindred are playing. And so that can then, um, that can then influence, um, Andreth's decision, right? It doesn't have to be, her choice doesn't have to be immediately in response to it. But again, but she would know what is the direction that the other, you know, elf, the, sorry, the other human, um, uh, you know, elf friends, well, and unfriends perhaps in some ways, in the case of, Hel- of Haloth, um grudging friends, um, uh, mostly non-hostile neighbors, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah, so I, I, th- that 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 sequence works for me, um, and so even if there is overlap right, like Marie was suggesting, if the council 's in three hundred and ninety nine so the council 's a little bit later in that frame, and Andreth's birth is a little bit earlier um, she 'd still be fourteen, uh, so she 'd be old enough to like hear and understand you know the news right after it happened um, and if it 's three hundred ninety nine and so she 's hearing about it then, and then the move to Darthonian happens maybe five years later, right? So there's been some time for her to be reflecting on this and to be using that as a way to kind of weigh, you know, the destiny of her house and people and that kind of thing. That, um, I think that that works really well. Okay, so uh, so again, carrying on working back. The Halladeen then who have to, who move first, um, they have to move Prior to the council happening, they're not part of that discussion, so somewhere between 365 uh, and 405 uh, is when that needs to happen, and then the stockade battle, of course, before that, uh, in the late 300s, 350 to 390, Um, and then of course Finrod is meeting Beor no earlier than 310 uh, and no later than 350, so there's some flexibility uh, there. Okay. No, that all, that all is good. So again, the, the chain of events, I like it, right? I mean, the rough chain of the, the chronological sequence that we're working with here is Finrod meets Beor, the house of Beor goes to Nargothrond. Uh, the house of Hollith arrives, the stockade battle, Hollith's family killed, Hollith leads her people, uh, on their adventure and they end up in, uh, in Brethil. Um, uh, then you've got the House of Hador figuring out their thing, right? So you've got you've got to have Hador establishing himself with Fingen, right? And then you've got him coming back and participating in the council and the Great Council and the fake Amlach and all that stuff. And then um then of course we've got we shift to young Andreth who is the up and coming prodigy leader of the House of Beor, and she leads them to Dorthonian, and they establish themselves in Dorthonian, and thus we end up with Brethil, Dorloman, and Dorthonian as the three sites in place and ready. And now intermarrying and uh, having all of the offspring everybody is supposed to have, so that we make sure everybody's ancestors get born on time. Uh, and uh, then we have the the Dagor Bragalock. And during that time, while the men have all settled down in the places where they're going to be and are comfortably intermarrying and begetting the appropriate offspring is when then the elves start talking about, do we attack or do we not attack? And Fingolfin starts doing his thing. Um, that, again, that sequence all seems to work. And I can certainly understand how the Arethel plot, again, almost totally detached from this, right? Um, uh, so... It's a lot less determined, and we only have really just the two things, right? We need, well, three things. There are three fact, time factors we have to take in mind, right? The first is, as I said, the the, the traffic in Dungortheb. The second is, as we've mentioned, I, she needs to be in Gondolin before the Dagor Bragalach breaks out. Um, and then the third thing is Maeglin's age, right? So her return to Gondolin should happen at least 40 years after the birth of Maeglin agreed. 40 seems a good year I mean, we're talking about like 35 40 being the early bound um as a 40 year old myglin would be a moody elvish teenager uh and that seems fine to me he doesn't have to be a fully you know emancipated adult by the time um uh she takes him back in fact i, I find it kind of attractive if she does not if he is not a fully emancipated, full-grown adult. If he is still, she still considers him her child, right? And is trying to protect him and guide him. Um, but he's got to be old enough. He can't just be, you know, a toddler, and he can't be even a an elementary school kid, right? He needs to be independent in order to initiate things um, and stuff. So, um, so yeah, that that I I like that. I like that. And I think that that'll work in the compressed time uh, that we're dealing with here in this season that we've constructed in this season. So, um, so if her return to Gondolin, that can happen really anytime, um, during that final phase, the men are all settled in their spots phase, right? Uh, can be when she heads back prior to the battle, obviously, um, which just means that mylen has to be born forty years before we've got plenty of time we've got plenty of time for them but um we'll um we'll see we'll see yeah stephen h the, the trying to initiate things with idril i mean mylen trying to initiate things with with idril. here's here's the main thing I agree we don't want to have uh you know we we don't wanna have a Padman Anakin situation, right, with with Miguel and Idril. Uh, no question. You know, we want the grown up actor uh playing Miglen at that point. Um but at the same time, um it's not gonna be a plot in this season. I mean, we're gonna plant the seeds of it, right? I mean, there needs to be like an exchange of looks at some point, you know, and Um, I mean, but I don't think we go any further than, you know, Maeglin looks at Idril and Idril looks at Maeglin and Idril gets the heebie-jeebies, like that's, you know, and they don't even speak, right? But we can't, we have no time, Um, we have no time to develop that plot line, nor do we want to, right? Maeglin's development and Idril's development, we need to save those, right? Because that's part of the Gondolin story and- apart from Aravel and Maeglin, um, this is not a Gondolin plot. Um, it starts and ends in Gondolin, but this is the, the Aravel, Eol, Maeglin plot, which is important to the future of Gondolin, but it's not really the Gondolin story yet. So I think we wanna not be distracted by that. So in, in that way, again, it it doesn't really matter super much to me how appropriate they look as a couple then. But he does need to be physically mature, physically mature, sufficiently physically mature, uh, for them to have an uncomfortable gaze, right? And not just for her to be like, Ooh, who's the creepy little child, right? Um, it can't be that clearly. Um, yeah, I agree, Marie. Steven's, season seven really seems to be the earliest moment at which we could start, uh, the uh uncomfortable non-romance between mygwin and idril but again i'm ready to save it uh because we we uh we, we've we've got the long game to play on that one it's going to be some time before Migwin becomes a major character um you know we need to keep an eye on him and make sure people don't forget who he is and where he came from but yeah he's not he's going to be a ways off anyway okay um one thing I wanted to uh, I just acknowledge, uh, Rihanna, uh, you were bringing this up, and this is a really important issue, and I, I agree with you. I let me just say that at the beginning, um, uh, and and so I just, but and, and I think that you're you're right to mention this as we're thinking through the, you know, not on this level, right? Not like the big, huge picture of making sure all the dates line up. That's obviously the place where we have to start, right? But as we're drilling down and beginning to think episode by episode one of the challenges of the timelines of the chronology of this season is that sometimes time is going to be passing faster and sometimes it's going to be passing more slowly right um and um so as rihanna was pointing out most of the time during a single episode we're gonna you know when we're going back and forth between an a plot and a b plot we're gonna want time to be passing sort of at the same pace between them, right? If we have, if in the A plot, you know, a week and a half has gone by and in the B plot, a hundred years have gone by, it's going to be a challenge uh, for people to follow. Um, Not impossible, but it is going to be a challenge. Um, And uh, so, um, I mean, there are ways that one can play with that, right? Um, The uh, really gorgeous play with chronology that they accomplished in The Witcher Season 1 comes immediately to mind, right? Um, that was by far my favorite thing about The Witcher Season 1 which I finally watched recently uh, and that was absolutely fantastic. Just loved that. Um, but anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. So anyway, so I agree, Rihanna, that, that it's, it's a concern that we have to keep in mind. Um, and so we just have to be aware of the fact that there will be times we may have to be kind of jumping forwards and backwards in time a little bit. And, you know, we have to be, it's doable, but we have to be conscious of the sort of challenges there and how we're framing the stories in some ways. So anyway, I just wanted to, that was a really good uh, and appropriate uh, comment there um now let's see a few other general things um one general kind of question or sort of discussion that was happening on the discussion boards was about Doriath Doriath of course is going to be primarily incidental to the other plot lines this season are we okay with that and my answer is yes I am okay with Doriath I mean we're not going to be everywhere at once, right? We can't have equal, we can't be giving equal time to everywhere. As I said, Gondolin is also marginalized in this season, uh, a little bit less so because one of the major plot threads of the season begins and ends there. But, um, and it, of course it will be talked about during that plot line consistently, even when they're not there, but um, but still, it's not like a meanwhile in Gondolin, um, we're not going to get much of that. Um, we're going to get very little of Ciaran at the Havens, as we discussed. Um, so, and that's fine. I mean, that's that's going to happen. That's inescapable, I think. Um, uh, for uh, and will happen in many seasons. Um, so that's fine. We have enough happening, like with the you know, thing uh, not Finrod, thingold um, deciding to forbid men to come. Uh, you know, we're going to have enough. Like, We'll we'll visit, right? Plus, of course, having um, uh, haleth skirting around the edges and interacting with Belleg in various ways. So, um, so that's fine. That's fine. I, I don't think we need to, you know, con- to bring in major plot lines uh, with the Doriath folks. They've uh, they've had some time. They're uh, they were they were a big focus last season. Um, they're going to be a big focus next season. They can have uh, they can have a season off. It's all good. Um okay yeah no that's excellent. Um Okay. Um let's go on to specific more color coding. Um now I don't know how well you could this is as big a print as we could make it and fit it on the slide. Um uh you might have to expand some things and zoom in a little bit if you can to see this. I'll read I'll read aloud what I'm talking about so you'll be able to see that, but uh, this is the outline, the overall outline of the season. Um, So episode one, Bayor, right? So we've got the A plot, B plot, and potential C plot. Uh, The color codes are, that we got the legend up at the top, green are elf plots, the uh, beige are men plots, purple are villains, and the dwarves are red. We don't get much dwarves here, but um, okay, that's fine. Any dwarves are good for this season, I think. So, a plot of episode one the proposal here is Beor, of course, leading his people into Beleriand, meeting Finrod, becoming his vassal, and moving to Nargothrond, or at the very least, choosing to move to Nargothrond. Maybe we have them arrive. Um, so, that's the a plot of season of episode one. That seems perfectly sensible. Um, uh, Arivel restless in Gondolin. So, let me tell you what. Let us, instead of going through horizontally, let me go through vertically. Um, I'm gonna go through vertically and then we'll correlate that with the B and C plots. I'm trying to figure out how to discuss this. I think that would be better. Ba- so let's get the main line, the proposed main line through the 13 episodes for the season. Oh wait, hang on a second. I think I only have, oops, darn it. I think I only have the first 11 on here. Hang on. Let me, uh, let me go to plan B. I should, I should have a plan B here. Hang on. Hang on. Uh, yeah, cause we can't, we're going to have a, we're going to be ending on a cliffhanger here if we're not, uh, if we're not careful. Uh, okay. Hang on. Is it this one? Nope. Distinctly not that one. Um, oh, I know. Hang on. It was this one. Wait, where'd it go? I have so many windows open. I can't find them. Um, hang on, hang on. Okay, no, no, that's not the one I'm looking for. No, no, that's the Gantt chart. This is a more detailed one. That's not the one I'm looking for either. Hang on, let me see. Maybe I, maybe I closed it. Yes. Okay, here's the Sheets version of it. Okay. And let me blow that up. Okay. This is good. I can blow this up a little bit more and make it a little bit more legible too. Okay. Alright, that's fine. Okay. Phew. Found it. There we are. All right. Um great. Okay, so yeah, I know we know 12 and 13 are the Dagor Bragollach, but there's still other, some other things to think about there. Um, okay, so I'll go through the A plots of all 13 episodes here. Uh, so, again, first one, I already said. Beor leads his people to Balarian, meets Finrod, becomes his vassal, moves to Nargothrond. Episode one. Episode two, Arthel focus. Arthel is the A plot. Her departure from Gondolin, traveling through Nandungor Theb to East Balarian. So that means we don't. Have the meeting with Ael. We just have her departure and her separation from her people. That's the that's the pr- proposal there for episode two. Episode three, uh, we've got the death of Beor and elves discover mortality, right? So that's kind of both humans and elves there. Um, so the, it's a it's a Nargathron focused episode, um, which is heavily focused on the issues between elves and men, basically, and they're coming to begin to understand the differences better between the two of them. Um, Elves and Men, that is. Episode four is the first Haleth episode, the big Haleth episode. This is the one where the stockade battle happens. Um, and uh, so it's mostly the stockade battle, and probably her decision, like, like she's probably, I'm um, thinking, and get you guys correct me if I'm wrong, episode four would end with, like, her meeting with Caranthir and saying Caranthir. Uh, saying no to Caranthir and saying, you know, as for my people, we will, like, make our own way, right? Basically, that's where episode four uh, ends. Okay. Um, and then episode five, the conflict between the Green Elves and the men of Estelad, mediated by Celeborn and Galadriel. Remember, we talked about that. The So this, this is the big unfriendship episode. Uh, and this is when the, lar- the third and largest house of the men are coming into Beleriand, now in episode five. Um, so it's nice. We've got a four... Um, you know, four episodes in between, right? Episode one to episode five, uh, uh, it's taking for the men to come in. Episode six is the escape. Okay, so the primary plot is the escape uh, by Rogren and Anil. Um, And that's good. That gives time for young Hador to get there, right? So Hador is going to be involved, right, in in episode six. Uh, So, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. And so that so that they've they've made it, right? Uh, the House of Hador, the future House of Hador has made it into Beleriand and now we've got Hador uh heading over there. That's all good. Okay, episode 7, the Council of Estelad caused called by Bereg and Amlak results in the House of Hador moving to Dor Loman. Okay, so the big council episode is then episode 7, Hador coming back and being like, "Hey, let's go visit the elves." Um then um, episode eight, that's Andreth, right? So we've got Andreth uh, visiting, uh, scrolling down here. Andreth visiting uh, uh, schools Finrod on the error of the Valinor impulse. She moves the house of Beor from Nargathron to Ladros. Okay, good, right? All right, we're decamping from Nargathron in episode eight. Episode nine, Ignor and Andreth fall in love in Dorthonian. But what brings them together drives them apart. So the tragic love story, the, the, uh, uh, the reciprocated uh, but unconsummated relationship between Aignor and Andreth, um, uh, uh leading to her tragic misunderstanding of that situation and her subsequent bitterness in the second part of her life, the longer part of her life, of course. Um, yes. And then episode 10, Aravel and Maeglin return to Gondolin, Eol follows and kills her. So we have that in episode 10. Then episode 11, Fingolfin's uh, big push to attack Angband uh, fails to get off the ground. And then episode 12 and 13 is the Dagor Braganlock. I like that. So one of the questions I know was, where does Aravel's return to Gondolin happen in Roy? I like that. I, I think that grouping those things. Grouping Fingolfin's big push and the Dagor Bragalach together at the end. We don't want Aravel to just be, like, interrupting that. There's... There needs to be some momentum towards catastrophe. Right? Um, episode 11 will be entirely pushing towards battle. Right? Um, you know, can, can this peace end? You know, can we um, uh, can we make it Can we make it happen? Can we make it through? Can we win um, this battle? Can we continue the siege? Can, you know, should we attack? Um, having everybody thinking about that in the one episode, and then the battle comes upon them in the next episode. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I don't want think. And here's the here's the thing I like most about it the failure of Fingolfin's big push. There's, there, there's this, there's an element of this, the, the juxtaposition of Fingolfin's big push and the battle. Um, there's a tragic like frustration there, right? Like, like, maybe it would have worked like it could all, it was almost there. Like it was, it's just, they, and then it's too late. Right. So, yeah, I think that, um, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, <clears throat> and Nick, I don't know, you know, I mean, I can see the, so I, I guess one of the objections that some folks are feeling is that if we, if the Arathel story is just over, then it like, gets over a little prematurely. It, like, you know, I think, I guess there are some who have the impulse to bring, um, you know, Arathel and Myglin's story to its culmination closer to the end of the season. Um, And I, I hear that, but but here's the thing there is no connecting it with the Dagor Bragala. I don't think there is. I don't see how we would want to do that or try to do that. So, you know, so just so, so Nick, like taking that to the, um, to its logical extreme, right? The logical extreme would be to have Arathel and Maeglin returning to Gondolin in episode 13, right? That's the logical extreme of, of that reasoning that says we want her plot arc to, to match the arc of the season. Um, we can't, I mean, what are we going to cut away from the Dagor Bragalak to like, and now, you know, speeches in Gondolin. Like, it's I, I, don't, I don't see that working, I really don't. Um, so if it's happening at the same time as the battle, it's going to be a mere distraction. And if it's not, the latest it could be is episode 11. And is the difference between episode and 10 and episode 11 that great? I don't think it is, I, I really don't. I mean, you're going to have these major weighty events namely the Dagor Bragalach, after it anyhow, right, dominating the culmination of the season. So the Dagor Bragalach is going to be hogging the headlines uh, in the last couple episodes of the season, no matter what happens. So, you know, two or three, it, it's, you know, whether the, 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 the war with Morgoth is hogging the headlines for two episodes or three doesn't seem to me to be a huge difference. Again, I can see how... Um, Uh, you know, architecturally speaking, it would be nice to have all of our major plots be culminating and we did a really good job of that, I thought, in the last season, in season four, bringing everything together um, in episodes 12 and 13. Um, But um, uh, yeah, yeah. So I I, um, yeah, I think that that's um, that's just just kind of the way it is, and I think we can live with it. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Marie. Having Goadriel's wedding uh, interact, uh, in, interrupted by the attack of a dragon, not literally, of course, in the wedding, but um, juxtaposing the wedding and the dragon. Um, that was already kind of pushing this envelope a little bit, but I, I thought it worked really well last season. Again, this season, we don't want the Dagor Bragalak to be like the B-plot. Um, or pushing the Arathel point. Uh, yeah, yeah, so no, I think I like this. I like episode 10, I like that very much because I really like the juxtaposition of Fingolfin's big push with the with the battle. I, that's, that's definitely my favorite part. Um, um, not to mention, there's something slightly attractive to me about the other juxtaposition, the episode 9 to episode 10 juxtaposition, the ignore and Andreth relationship, the so near and yet so far relationship, and then the final descent into ultimate dysfunction of the other dysfunctional relationship uh, of season 5, right, in in Arathel and, and Um Juxtaposing those two, I think, is kind of fun, also um i think there are lots of ways in which we can kind of make make those two episodes uh kind of play on each other in some ways i think there's some fun opportunities there so i like that too so yep episode 10 totally convinced okay so i am loving that sequence uh, and then of course oh sorry i didn't even get to 12 and 13 the Dagor braggalack sure um but where are we dividing this um, we've got the Dorthonian, so the proposal here is that uh, the Dorthonian front is the emphasis of episode 12. The deaths of both Agnor and Angrod uh, and Bregor all happen there in uh, in episode 12. Then in episode 13, we have Fingolfin's reaction to the Dagor Bragalach and his final, and then, and then the duel with Morgoth. So yeah, love that. We have the, the first half be the emphasis on the devastation wrought, right, and the deaths of you know, most of the important people who die and then have the episode 13 be really focused on Fingolfin, um, his experience of it, and then going back to what he was doing and saying and thinking, uh, and dreaming and such, uh, in episode 11. Uh, so, uh, um, so yes. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, all right. So let me go back then to the B plots, the B and C plots here together. Um, uh, all right. So in episode one, which was Beor and Finrod and the, and Beor going to Nargothrond, we also have Ardell's restlessness in Gondolin where we've got to get her ready to depart. depart. Um, so we, we need to, so the B plot will be setting up Ardell. I like that. That pacing seems to be really good to me. Um, I'm totally happy to give her a whole episode, uh, as the B-plot, right? We don't necessarily have to spend a huge amount of time with her, um, but it's not going to, it shouldn't be something that happens immediately. We, de- we definitely don't want it to look like a merely impulsive piece of impatience. We've talked about that before. Um, so giving us some time to establish that and for Targan to deliberate, say no, and then give in and be convinced. So there's going to need some time. So episode one, that seems, that seems uh, really good there. Um, and then... Uh, okay. I think I can. There we go. We can get most of it in. There we go. All right. Um, and then uh, the C plot is the reaction to the arrival of men in Balerian. So there we have, you know, different reaction shots, right? As men are coming in. Oh, the aftercomers have arrived, right? So yeah, we certainly need to establish that. Um, Uh, And that will help to set the framework for a bunch of the human-oriented plots um, that we will get. We'll get, you know, Galadriel and Celeborn. We can introduce them, remind everybody that they're still in that area, right? So we can have uh, Galadriel and Celeborn responding. Um, We can have Thingol and Melian, her hearing news of it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to ban. The ban is going to be later on, but again, it can come to Melian, right? Um, The news. Uh, we, you know, the Fanorians, of course, we need to have the Fanorian reaction. Fingolfin can hear about it. Um, uh, so yeah, I really, uh I really like that. Um, uh, okay. Now, episode two. Episode two, uh, is one of Aravel's two, uh, primary episodes, like ones where she where Arathel is the A plot, right? She's the protagonist of the episode. And this is her departing from Gondolin, going through the Nandungortha, being separated from her people and going off to East Beleriand. Um, now the uh, um, one of the points of debate I think is, you know, Arothel entering Nan Elmoth, meeting Aeol, and becoming engaged, like the romance between Arothel and Aeol, is scheduled for the next one for episode three. And um, so I get the point, one point of debate is do we end episode two with Arthel meeting Aeol? Or do we have her meet Aeol at the beginning of the next episode? Uh, let me think about that, hang on. Let's look at the B and C plots. So the B and C plots, proposed B and C plots for episode two while Arthel is traveling and getting to Nan Elmoth in the general Nan Elmoth neighborhood um, is the house of Bayor life in Nargothrond, the friendship of Bayor and Finrod. So this is where we get like the Bayor and Finrod bromance montage, right? You know, them mini golfing together and, you know, uh, um, uh, whatever they do, you know, um, hanging out. Um, uh, And uh, potential visit to Círdan. So this is where we bring Círdan in. Okay. All right. Sure, sure. I could see that. Um, and then the sea plot, Fingolfin expressing confidence in the effectiveness of the Siege of Angband and Fingon setting off for East Beleriand. So Fingon is going to scope out the humans, the newly arrived humans. Fingolfin is going to be uh, uh, thinking that the Siege of Angband is going to be uh, is going to be all good. OK, good, good. Um, OK, so. <sighs> Marie, this is one of the things I'm concerned about. I don't know that I like Bayor going to visit Círdan. Tuor is supposed to be the first human to see this, the ocean. Um, that's a mythic moment. Tuor stands on the shores of the sea is a big mythic moment. And I don't know that I want to lose that. I know it's not necessarily a third. I know, I know, Marie, that that's like, it is said that he was the first one to. Um, yeah, uh, I see you guys were debating this on Sunday. By the way, great session on Sunday. I actually tuned in for some of it. Um, uh, the, our uh, script writing team uh, was broadcasting uh, into the wee hours of Sunday evening uh, this past week, talking about episode one. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, on the one hand, I always found, like part of me always found that bit about two are a little strange because humans have been in Beleriand for an awful long time, you know, to um, had, have never one of them been curious enough to travel to the coast, um, uh, though they'd certainly heard about it from the elves. Um, so on the one hand, I felt like I'd, I always kind of had to suspend disbelief on that point, <clears throat> but at the same time it's kind of awesome as well. So, I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's, uh, that's Yeah, so, Stephen, humans aren't being drawn westward in the same way, I think. Um, not, not, they don't have, like, the sea longing kind of thing. Like, it's not like the, the sea that they're being, they're being drawn towards the light in the west and when they meet the elves, they feel that they've found it um or rather like they meet the elves and they're told yeah there's a there's like a big light in the well i mean it used to be bigger to be honest but anyway yeah way in the west but you can't get there so you might as well stop walking um no i mean they settle down um but yeah um uh yeah um yeah exactly, Florian. They meet the Calaquendi, and there's the white in the West, right as far as they're concerned um uh, okay but i'm 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 okay if I mean if we want Bear to meet Kieran, it's fine. goodness knows Tour will have enough firsts in his life, you know um and needless to say, Tour's encounter with the sea is going to be somewhat more striking and personal than Beor's. So, you know, it's not like we're going to be really seriously diminishing Toor's encounter with Olmo, right? Uh, just by having Beor having once had a, a seaside vacation, you know, a couple hundred years before. So, um... I, Um... um I, yeah... I think um, that's. I'm willing to bend on. It. I just, I just, just wanted to make sure we're counting the cost there. That's all. Just wanted to make sure we're counting the cost. Okay. Anyway. All right. Um, so that seems fine. Um, Rihanna I think I'm on your side, um, and not just for time purposes. Um, But for dramatic purposes, the encounter with the tall, dark stranger in the forest seems like a good ending note for the episode. Who is that tall, dark stranger? Credits roll. Not, you know, not cheesily, but you see what I mean? Like, it gives a culmination point, like it gives an end point to the episode, whereas like... I mean, yes, we couldn't easily do it that, like, she separated from her companions and Gorfindel and Ecthelion have to go home and, and she eventually, and she, you know, her choice to go off on her own. That's all good stuff. And her resolution to continue could be enough of an ending point to make a worthwhile episode. But, um, but I think the first encounter with Aeol seems to me, uh, I, um, yeah. Ah, uh, Nick is reminding me that I'd wanted to get Aravel to get to the homes of the Fanorians and find that they aren't there. Yeah. Hey, but she's the A-plot in this episode. She can be all over the place. Um, Yep. Especially if we're starting, if we've established her unrest fully in episode one. Right. So episode two can begin with them on horseback. Right. Um, like she can even say farewell to Turgen at the end of episode one. Right. I mean, they're like, bye. I'll, 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 I'll leave in the morning. Bye. And Turgen's like, I've got a bad feeling about this. And she's like, I don't care. See ya. Right. So, I mean, like, like the, the, the leave taking can happen at the end of episode one. So episode two begins with like, you know, Arathel and Gorfindel and, and Dick on a horseback, essentially. Right. Like riding through, um, uh, the pass. Right? <laughs> or does that not fit with what you guys have already talked about about episode one? Anyway, I'm just saying uh, if episode two focuses on the journey, there's plenty of time for her to have a multi-stop journey uh, uh, in which not too very many things happen. I mean, she doesn't have a whole series of events at the Fanorians, right? She just gets there and moves on. Um, Uh, anyway, but I'm just thinking like, again, who is that tall, dark stranger, right? Is, is it like, I, I, I think if we, we don't have to get further than that at the end of episode two, but that seems to me like a better ending point. So that, especially since Arathel is shifting to the B plot in episode three, right? Um, so if we've already established Arethel has met a tall, dark stranger, like her the unfolding of her slightly disquieting romance with the tall dark stranger can it's it's easy, it's more easily be palatable i think if we if we strike the first note uh at the end of episode 2 um okay but so then episode 3 death of bayor Elves wrestling with the mortality concept. That's when Arathel is wrestling with the romance with the concept. Right. And then the C plot is Fingen observes a settlement of men from a distance. So we've got fingen he he was coming to East Beleriand, and right? he's coming in. So we're gonna have the we're 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 getting ready uh for him to meet up with um uh towards his meeting up with Hador, right? But the settlement of men he's observing from a distance is, I assume, the Haladin, in fact, right? In preparation for the stockade battle, which happens in the next episode? Or because we don't have the... They're not coming in. The House of Hador isn't coming in until episode five, right? With the unfriendship. Right, exactly. So that so that introduces the haladine, right? Okay, that's what I thought. So he sees the haladine from a distance and is like, ooh, there's the men that I hear about. And then we meet them, this other people of men, in episode four, the stockade battle, and they're all destroyed, and why doesn't Fingen help them? I, he must have wandered off and gone somewhere else, right? So he sees them and is like, I'm gonna be all anthropological about this, and I'm gonna maybe introduces himself. I don't know, right? What does he introduce himself? Say hi, hey. But I'm gonna to, I'm totally hands off. I'm like friendly, and I'm not gonna freak you out, and I'm not trying to take over. And then he goes to visit Mythros, right? Friend Mythros, right? Perhaps something like that. Um, but um, okay, right, great. And the, so stockade battle, Gothmog, not Gothmog. Sorry, Bulldog leading the stockade battle. Um, uh, uh, saving the rest of her people after the death of her family. Uh, the B plot Arthel and Aol have been have been married, and they're traveling and meeting the dwarves and the birth of Myglun. So we get we establish the Aol and the dwarf thing. Um, Arthel going around with him, so she's not just locked in the house yet. And Myglun is born. Um, we have to have congenial relationships uh, uh, for the beginning of a child. Uh, and our C plot is Sauron puts his spell of not so bottomless dread on sleeping elf prisoners in Angband, trying to, to, to begin his plan there. Um, now Stephen H is asking, uh, Bulldog, uh, if, uh, how does Sauron learn of the stockade battle, uh, to express his displeasure at Bulldog and maybe Gothmog's antics? Um, uh, easy. Sauron knows what's going on, right? Sauron has spies everywhere, um. Uh, especially, I mean, this is what, like, Tavildo and her people are doing, right? You don't have, like, a, a swarm of spy bats and not keep in touch with what's going on around Beleriand, right? So, um, uh, so yeah, so he's, I mean, the stockade battle makes a noise, right? So he finds out about that, and he gets frustrated and irritated and is like, how are you, uh, um, what's, your, what's your plan? Um, would he express it to Bulldog's face? Well, I don't think we're going to see it. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're going to, I mean, we're, we're we're not going to show that, but would he? Sure. Sauron outranks Bulldog, right? Bulldog is a, is he's, he's a kind of a big deal. I mean, he's the Uber orc, but he's still an orc and therefore a flunky. Um, he's certainly not on Sauron's level. He's maybe the peer of Sauron's lieutenants, right? Um, but Sauron would, but Sauron also isn't going to waste his time yelling at Bulldog because he knows that Bulldog just... You know, Bulldog is just a gun that somebody else points at folks. So he he didn't make the plan, right? Um, so he's not going to waste his being upset at, uh, at Bulldog, I don't think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but I agree, Nick. I don't think he's going to be, like, super hot and bothered about it. But I think that, you know, again, if we do want to show the beginning of this sort of gap between Sauron and Morgoth... Sauron's disapproval of these kinds of tactics. Like, look, only, you know, it's, it's, this is not going to do us any good in the long run. This is a, this is, this is short, um, short sighted thinking, the attack. Okay. Episode five. A plot is the unfriendship plot with the green elves and the incipient house of Hador coming over the mountains. Um, And the B pot is gonna be Haleth crossing Nandan Gortheb after being denied entry into Doriath. So we've got them on the move. Uh, Everybody's on the, well, House of Beor still isn't on the move yet, but the other two are on the move. And this is when we get Thingol's ban on men entering Doriath and Melian's reaction that as the C plot that makes perfect sense to me because this is going to be our most Doriath centered episode of the entire season anyway, right? Because uh, we are going to be having Hollith skirting around the perimeters of Doriath uh, and being denied by Beleg and stuff. So um, it's going to be most relevant to bring up the whole human question and the question of humans entering uh, Doriath. So that's perfect. Um, Episode six then is the escape from Angband. So now we shift entirely up to Angband, Rogrin and Anil uh, uh, escape. Um, Hador is gonna be, the C plot is gonna be Hador at the age of 18 taking service with Fingolfin and aiding in Rogrin's escape. Um, so Fingon uh, so and Hador have to both, could they go back together? We had Fingon over here right? Over in this area. Um, could he take Hodor back with him? I mean, is that, could they meet and he could, yeah, you know I mean, cause that, I, you know, that seems logical, right? That he, so it's not just like some teenagers are like, I know I'm going to cross the continent in the hope that the elves will take me in, right? It'd be a little bit more natural if Fingen is there and saying, Hey, come back to my house and we'll, yeah, that's the plan. Excellent. That's, I think that's an excellent plan. Good. So Fingon brings him back over, and then Fingon and Hador help with the escape. And that's when Fingon gifts Hador the dragon helm, which is going to go over. That's going to be super impressive at the at the council, right? Um, and the B plot is Haleth settling in Brethil and killing Tavildo. So we've got we're near the end, not of her life, but of the trajectory of 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 the Haladin. There. Good. Good. Um, and then we've got, uh, episode, what are we up to? Seven, the council of Estelad, uh, called by Berag and Amlok, uh, right. And then we've got Sauron infiltrating the council is the B plot. So we've got the men as the A plot around the council. The B plot is Sauron infiltrating, um, and, uh, the, the fake Amlok plot. Um, and then the C plot, we've got back to Arthel. Meanwhile, Arvel is uh raising young Miglin and Nan Elmoth no longer permitted to travel, so the relationship has gone further downhill. Uh we've got ale creepily not naming his kid, uh just calling him, you know, my son. Um uh yes, yeah. Um yeah, so all kinds of uh Aeol can be in full creepy mode here, right? Like things have really gone south, but Miglin's already born. Yep. Okay, so that's the C-plot there of episode seven. Episode eight, uh, now we shift back to Nargothrond. So the House of Hador, they've decided to move up to Dor Loman, right? Hador wins the council, right? And they go up to Dor Loman. Cut back to Nargothrond. Andreth, young Andreth at the age of 25, um, has a conversation with Finrod, explains how they need to leave, and she leaves, leads them out of Nargothrond. The B plot there is Arethel telling Maeglin stories of Gondolin. Love that parallel. Love it. That is beautiful. Um, Andreth talking about like, oh, it is our destiny to be like we need to go. And and Arethel telling Maeglin stories and Maeglin wanting to to go. And Ail taking Maeglin to visit the dwarves. Really cool. Love that. Love that. Um, I think that's really neat. Um, And also like kind of uncomfortable. Right. The way that it parallels Andreth's initiative and like Ardell and Myglen on the other side is a little uncomfortable. I think a, a, a pleasant discomfort. Right. Um, and the choice to move to Nargothrond is being, is in a sense being paralleled with the gondolin movement. Right. But it's also a kind of a counter parallel. It's moving in a different direction. Um, you know, we shouldn't be isolated and kept and preserved here within these walls. We need to be out there. Um, which is kind of like what they thinks anyway. So I, there's, I love that. Really, really cool stuff. Um, as well as, Nick, as you say, the contrast between the creepily, very creepily by this time, possessive and restrictive Aeol and Finrod, on the other hand, being generous and, and letting them go, right? So there's another obvious contrast there, which is no, No, that's brilliant. That's my favorite A-B plot so far in the whole season. Um, episode nine, then the Ignor and Andreth love story after we get to Um And, uh, okay, this where seems to be one of the biggest questions on the B and C plots. The C plot is Thuringwethil vamping out with Onile and stealing his memories, as I was suggesting. Um, the B plot may be a dwarf story, right? We've established the dwarves a couple times. We've had um, Aeol and Arevel meeting the dwarves back in episode, what was it, three, four, four, Episode four, um, we've had Eo and Maeglin visiting the dwarves just in the previous episode, so continuing, uh, a dwarf story, possibly with Finrod and the Nauglamir, that's true, we do need to get the Nauglamir, uh, built at that point. Um, uh, do I think that Andreth is too old for her love story at 28? I certainly do not. Now, look, first of all, um, you know, look, the whole May-December thing, right? Like the May-Fly-December thing uh, between Andreth and Ignor. We're talking about a very serious age gap no matter how old Andreth is, but let's be honest, it's gonna look creepy. I mean, if she were really young, I mean, if Andreth were like, you know, 19 or something like that, it would be, I like her being more mature, right? And 20, it's not like 28 old, right? Um, But uh, I like, you know, she's she arrives, um, uh, you know, not as she is no longer just like the child prodigy who is, you know, accepted as a at a young age as the new leader of her people. She is now, you know, the the, you know, fully mature, uh, well established leader of her people uh, coming in. She's going to be impressive not just as a young, fresh, you know, face, but she's going to be, um, you know, her, her, her wisdom and leadership, she will have been seasoned also by the journey, right? With her people. So she's not just going to be, hi, I'm also sheltered and innocent. Um, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Marie, I I think I think many of us can agree that twenty eight is not too old. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think uh, I think there are many people in the audience who perhaps have an investment in that uh, in that in that concept. Um, yes. Yes. Um, Florian, I agree. I don't think that the Nauglemere is essential for this season. Um, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sold on on this bit. Uh, on the dwarf story there um maybe maybe didn't i have dwarf ideas i guess if we did a dwarf plot it would seem to me best to have it actually be connecting to like you know the whole idea that i had about arvel wanting to help create an alliance right if we have that kind of fall apart in some way maybe or because ael is such a creep um uh Yeah, I know Finrod is dying soon, but he isn't dead yet. Uh, There's time still to commission the... Yeah, I mean, first of all, like, the commissioning, the making of the... Like, those don't have to be plot points. Like, the NowGlamir, you know, uh, Finrod unboxing the NowGlamir can happen in episode one if we want it to, right? I mean, um, it's... um, Yeah. Yeah, do we? Does he need to? I don't know that he does need to have it before the Dagor Bragalak. He just needs to have it before he dies. I mean, does he need it before the Dagor Bragalak? But he doesn't use it in the Dagor Bragalak or anything. I mean, um, uh, I just yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I don't see that as absolutely essential. Um, I yeah, because I, I, the only the, the Naglemer just has to exist. Um, yeah. Um, now, sure, there's an argument to be made for that, Rhiannon. Rhiannon says, why would he be commissioning a necklace when half of Beleriand is at war? Um, more convenient way to carry more of your jewels if you've got to run for it. Uh, no, I mean, I hear that. I hear that. Um, I have an answer, though, Rhiannon. Here's my answer. When half of Beleriand at war is when you want to cement your alliances with dodgy potential allies who are still on the outskirts of the battles and the dwarves of nagrod would very much fit into that category so if a subplot of the early section of season six were As the elves attempt to recover, post-Dagor Bragala can regain some kind of a clear foothold here in Beleriand. That's obviously going to dominate the first couple episodes in addition to the Baron and Luthien stuff. We're going to have to have that happening in the early parts of Season 6. Finrod reaching out to the elves of Nogrod makes sense. And what better way to reach out to them than to say, like, hey, what's bring together I and mean, we can even foreshadow it. Right. And be, you know, he can even propose like these gems are some of the greatest of the craftsmanship of my people. Um, let us, I will give them to the greatest craftsmen of your people and we shall make, you know, together a thing, which is, you know, again, so this as a, um, as a, as a, 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 a friendship Alliance making thing. Right. Um, um, See i Brianna and I know that it's not yet. Yeah, like it's all, that is only really gonna be fulfilled when the Silmaril is part of it, right, but that's the deal like i i i'm and and then his praise for it and everything and they like the they would be into this like I would think that this would be the path to the hearts of the dwarves of nagrad right um at least initially um uh, yeah um now I agree Nick that it does like. The contrast between Finrod and Aiol makes it relevant in this season. I can see that certainly. Um, I'm just—I don't know. Finrod seems to have enough to do. I'm not totally against it. We can talk about it more as we get closer to it. But um, but I'm—I again, I just—I'm um, not sure I'm seeing. It just feels like a. It feels like it doesn't feel relevant to the events of this season. Um, Especially since the forging of the Nauglamir is the beginning of a plot arc, which is going to culminate in the downfall of Doriath, right? So it's another reason why I kind of want to push it back, because to me, putting the forging of the Nauglamir in the same season forging is not exactly the right word, but you know what I mean? in the same season as Thingol dooms Doriath by asking for a Silmaril, right? Those fit together, right? Eventually they're literally going to fit together, uh, right? In the remade Noglimir that that, uh, Thingol is going to make. Um, That's still a little bit of a ways off, but I kind of like having the, if we associate the Naoglamir from its day one with, you know, through a plot B plot kinds of thing with Dor with single. I mean, what if, what if, um, Finrod's commissioning of the now is like the B plot of the, um, Baron brought before Thingol episode, right? When Thingol, uh, you know, uh, brings Doriath under the doom of Mandos. Right. See what I mean? Like it, that to me, that's better. Then it's more relevant there in season six, it feels to me, than this. And I know it's like a bit of a rush. Um I know it's a bit of a rush to get the Nalglamir commissioned prior to Finrod's death. He still will have time, even at that point. I know Baron's gonna set out and go to Nargothrond, but um but again, he can he can he can he can get back. Um uh anyway, yeah. Um so um
0: I want to register a vote in favor yeah. of this proposal.
1: Okay, yeah. Wait, in favor of this of the of saving the Naglamir till season six?
0: Yeah. I like the juxtaposition that you've proposed. I agree. That that seems that that seems seems portentous if you do it that way. Because there's I like it.
1: The purpose of the Naglamir. Like the Naglamir is part of the story of the fall of Doriath. That is its purpose. It is Finrod mm-hmm. who commissions it. But it's it has no other role. Um, it's not important, except for the only, I, I, I mean, the only reason to include it other than for sentimental reasons is as part of the story of the fall of Doriath. So, but I don't want to do the story of the fall. I don't want to start the story of the fall of Doriath. We don't need it. Again, timing is going to be a little, you know, we can, we will see how the timing can work, but I don't want to be, it's too early to be, to be worrying about the downfall of Doriath yet. Um, we could make portents of that in this season, but why would we want to? Let's save it for next season when that's going to be, I mean, the doom of Doriath is going to be spelled out by the end of that season. Like, we don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but Melian will have actively prophesied the downfall of Doriath by, you know, the first, within the first half of season six, right? So.
0: I, I think this is this is one of those things that in the, the, this is one of those funny things that arises in, a, in an adaptation of this kind, right? Where I think I think in the book, um, the, uh, Tolkien makes no has no like there's no qualms about uh, foreshadowing things like this, like from the very beginning, even because it's just kind of all up front, like oh, we're telling this story, right? right. <clears throat> um, right. Uh, and and you know, arguably, arguably most people coming to it probably are already pretty familiar with it because they've read Lord of the Rings, etc. But I think in the, in a, in a show like this, yeah, we don't, I think we don't want people worrying about that this season. We, we want to have like these, I mean, there, there's some stories that we're planting in earlier seasons and then paying off in much later seasons. But in yeah. general, we're trying really hard to have these, like these season long arcs. Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think fall of Doriath, like really that would kind of make sense as like for next season as kind of like an, an arc for that right. whole season. We wouldn't right. want to lose, like, like we don't want people, worrying, we don't want the audience worrying about this season, and we don't want to lose some of the power that we could have by kind of uh, spoiling it this season.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, um, and I don't see any, I don't see any, uh, you know, I don't see any, any obstacles that we can't overcome to things like, I mean, Stephen H., I, I see your concern about travel, but... It's not like everyone's just going to stay home. Yeah, there's a bigger chance of meeting raiding orcs at any time crossing going across Beleriand in Season 6 after the Dagor Bragollach. But it's not like no one's going to ever travel again, right? Finrod is not just going to stay in Nargothrond. He's not just going to hide out forever and never like speak to anybody ever again, right? Um and he is totally capable. Is he Is he capable of going across, you know, between Nargothrond, which is fairly southerly, and Nagrod, which is also, you know, going across into Assyrian and going north through Assyrian? Could he make that and live? Sure. It's not going to be that hard. Um, so, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and Florian also points out, and this is a really good point, if we have Finrod essentially like paying off Aravel's desire for a dwarven alliance this season, well, it won't pay off because Finrod is going to be saved by Bari here, not by the dwarves, right? We are not, in fact, going to be building towards any culmination of like, and, but, you know, thank goodness the dwarves of Nagrod had been brought into the, uh, you know, into the picture, uh, you know, that's not going to, we're not going to pay that off in this season, um, and if anything, I would kind of rather not pay it off because I would like to show that Aravell's hope for an alliance, you know, her, like the way in which she sees her relationship with Aeol as part of the larger, you know, Elvish story and the part of the siege of Angband should come to nothing. I mean, it should fall to pieces with her marriage. Right. Um, And when she goes back to Gondolin, she is going back to Gondolin, fleeing from her husband and knowing that, like, she did not succeed in doing what she had hoped to do. Um, And all that she has left is just to try to protect her son. Like her one hope is to bring her son to Gondolin. Right. So that at least his life can be protected and perhaps not corrupted by his father. Um, and that, of course, is hideously tragic, right? That like her one hope is to bring mygle to gondolin, which is, of course, the biggest disaster of all. Um, but um uh, yeah, yeah. so um so yeah, Florian, exactly we later on, right, when an, when when uh, an effective alliance is established and the dwarves do uh, come in and fight effectively during uh, the near ninth Arnoidiad, um then we can kind of call back to Aradell's plan. This can be like the, you know, uh somebody will remember that this was Aradell's vision, right? That 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 happened. Um so yeah, yeah, that's that's cool, but but see like all I'm hearing though with the Nauglamir is in this season is it's just like and now a necklace randomly, right? Like it doesn't connect with anything. Uh, in this season. I mean, again, like, yes, I get Finrod as the anti-Aeol, sure, but we're already establishing that in other ways. Um, The Nagomir doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't mean anything in this, and he doesn't need it. Like, he just needs it before he's dead, right? That's all. It just has to get to Nargothrond. That's all. That's all. It just has to be there uh, so that, because it's not going to be needed until Hurin picks it up, right? That's it. That's it. But see, Rhiannon, I don't even agree that we should be showing Finrod with it as long as possible. I disagree. It's not associated with Finrod. I mean, I know he commissioned it, but there is no story involving Finrod doing anything with the now apart from commissioning it. Right. We know that like, and the only reason it's connected with him is that he had all the bling. Right. It's got to be in Nargothrond, but does he wear it? Does it do something? Again, there's, there's no point. Like, he has to, like, his ring that he gives to here. yeah, that's a big deal. And that needs to be a big deal in this season. But the Naoglamir, right? I mean, what are, is he going to be wearing the Naoglamir in the Dagor Bragalach, right? You know, and so what? So we have him be like, and so here, uh, my human rescuer, in thanks I shall give you but my- no, actually, on second thought, I'll just give you my ring. Right. It, it costs so much less. So I'm, I'm going to keep my necklace, you know, my, my circlet or my necklace for, for myself. Right. This is this is mine. But you can have my ring. Right. I mean, no, seriously, like there's no it, there's no there's no function. There's no story function to the Naoglamir anywhere in season five. Again, I, I'm not saying that, like, I hate it. But why should we make a story? Look, we've, look at all the story we've got. Look, at, I mean, if there's one thing that jumps out at your eyes, when you just scan your eyes over this page, it is this box, right? This is the box that stands out and is totally different from everything else and disconnected with anything else. It's the only box that's this color, right? Um, (laughs) That says to me, what is happening in that box is not essentially tied uh, to the rest of the story. Um, I'm just, uh, I just, I don't, I. The Nauglamir has a story. Let's not confuse the story of the Nauglamir. The Nauglamir is the first step to the doom of Doriath. And I want want it to be part of, I don't want to confuse it with other stories. Let us keep it being about Doriath and therefore in season six, the beginning of the downfall of Doriath season, not in season five. So I feel pretty strongly about that, Um, but, Again, and I'm not. I'm not anti-dwarf story. If we want to have another dwarf politics story, we want to introduce the distinction between Belagost and Nogrod. We can do that. In, in, in as I'm I'm fine with having a dwarf story. I don't object to the color red uh, here in general. I'm just saying, um, I don't I don't like the Naglamir in the middle of this. In the middle of this season, I don't think it's necessary and I don't think it's good. I think it's bad. If we made stories for it, we'd be making distracting and irrelevant stories that take away from its true story. How many different plot threads do you want this one necklace to be connected to? It has a role, right? And its role will be next season. Um, uh, So, um, um, okay. So that's episode, What, which, which one were we at? This is uh, nine? Yeah, nine. Ignor and Andreth, something dwarvish maybe, and Thorin Gwethil vamping out with Anil. Um, which, by the way, Ignor and Andreth being juxtaposed with Thorin Gwethil vamping out with Anil. Really interestingly creepy. Kind of like that. Um, okay, episode 10. Yes, episode 10. Episode 10, Arithel, going back to the end of the Arithel plot, return to Gondolin, everybody dies. Well, not everybody, but, you know, both of them die. Um, the B-plot is the bitterness of Andreth's the, the B-plot is the Athrobeth itself, the conversation between Finrod and Andreth, um, discuss, discussing the differing fates of elves and men. That is fascinating. Hmm. Okay. I'm wondering, could we, could we switch? I would kind of like a gap between a little gap between the love, the falling in love, and the athrobath. Is it possible to bump the double wedding up to episode 10? Would that be possible? So, like, things are falling apart in Gondolin at the same time that the humans are all coming together, and Vingolfin is has his warning vision. Um, and then in episode 11, we have the athrobath. More time can have passed. Andreth can be a little older. Um, I kind of want the romance with Aignor to be a little bit further in the rearview mirror by the time the Athrobeth happens. Also, I quite like the idea of the Athrobeth being the episode before the battle comes. To have, you know, Finrod essentially going straight from not straight from like the same day, you understand, but like going straight from his conversation with Andreth to, um, especially since like the topic of their discussion is death. I was talking about death the whole time, right? Um, and what death means to their people and uh, and, you know, what are the differing fates of elves and men? And then to go straight from that discussion of death and that big stuff to the battle in which lots of people die, right? Um, plus it gives a little bit more. If the Athrobeth is the B plot, not of the Arathel story, but of the Fingolfin's big push A plot, then we have, it, it feels a little bit more. I mean, what Finrod, Finrod is, this is the point at which, in addition to talking about death, Finrod is also going to be explaining to Andreth, it's not that he wasn't into you, my brother, right? He just, he can't, like literally he can't, like physically he can't marry you uh, not because you're human even right it's not even that it's because of what's happening right now right like he he's he's going to war and elves don't do that right that's part of what he's explaining to her at the end of the athrobath and if that happens you know if we're cutting to that conversation from fingolfin's big push right to attack Angband, um it, it feels a, a little more present right we can even we can even have ignore in those you know, discussions, essentially. Um, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's see. Nick is concerned about the... Um, uh, the bar here becoming the leader of the House of Beor thing. If the double wedding... Hang on, Nick. Hang on a second. I'm I'm being dumb. I'm not following your objection here. Um, uh. Yeah. Um. Hang on, Nick. Does Finrod have to get back to Nargothrond? Why does Finrod have to get back to Nargothrond? Can't he be up there in Dorthonion? You know, hanging with Andreth? and then, then all he has to do is just get to the Paths of Syrian in order to be ambushed, right? Uh. I, I don't think what he doesn't have to get to Nargothrond and back, does he? Is there a reason he has to get to Nargothrond and back? Um, well, no, he doesn't have to bring troops from Nargathron, but others can. I mean, he does have some other folks, right? Who else was there? Wasn't there another named elf we were introducing in Nargothrond? Who else do we have down there in Nargothrond? Yeah, yeah, uh, Gwyndor. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Gwyndor. Gwyndor and what's-his-face. G- Gwyndor in the future uh, dismembered... Duel in! That's it. That's it. That's that's his face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Why not? Um, or he can bring them with him? Sure. Why not? Why not? Maybe he... Because Fingolfin's doing his big push and we're talking about this, maybe he brings an army with him. Um because something is happening and he knows that something is happening. So his army could be out, you know, in the, like, you know, yeah. So he could have already brought, we can so either one of those would work fine for me. Either he knows that something is afoot and he's like been, you know, and so he's like coming up to support whatever Fingolfin wants to do. Um, so he moves his people up to, up to, um, I mean, he has that Northern outpost anyway, right? Uh, Tol Syrian. You know, Minas Tirith. So he moves his army up to Minas Tirith, and then while his army's in Minas Tirith, he travels to Dorthonian to hang out with Indin to visit Andreth and stuff, right? That, I, I, uh, um, or again, he can bring an army up. Um, yeah, um, I'm asking myself, why do we have to have? Um, why does an army from Nargothrond have to be there? And my only answer is, is Gwyndor's brother. We need to get him captured, but he can just be with with Finrod. I mean, like he can just be. I mean, Finrod presumably didn't travel alone, right? So he just needs to be like one of the retainers that Finrod brought with him. Um, Is there any other, I mean, is there, is there a also, so they look less like jerks, Nick. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, uh, Yeah. Um, Nick says, I'll have less of an aneurysm if he isn't moving his armies during a peace time that he wants to maintain. Well, okay, okay, that's fine. Um, But he's got to have some people at, at, at Minas Tirith, right? I mean, like, doesn't he have, like, his B army at Minas Tirith? Surely? I mean, he didn't create that stronghold in order to leave it unmanned, right? So, he can still look like not-jerk and participate in the battle with some backup, right? Um, without having to bring all the Gondolindrim north, necessarily. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Or addressing Gilgalad, are at Minas Tirith. Yep, sure. And, and again, presumably not by their lonesomes, right? I mean, they presumably have an army. There are, you know, some folks right there, and fin- Finrod could join them. They're, you know, they're a- affiliated with him, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that I I I'm I'm not too worried about the military movements there, as far as Finrod is concerned. I mean, honestly, he's gonna have he would have to he would have to move, right? To even if he were sitting in Nargothrond with a telescope, right? Uh, anticipating the coming of the Dagor Bragollach, for him to schlep his army north from Nargothrond after the battle has begun, you know, it's possible, but still, like that seems. Um, he's going to still be late to the prom, I think, if he's doing that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, Florian, I agree. I, I, I don't see any reason why Finrod can't be wherever the heck we want him to be during almost any point of the later episodes. I agree. Um, I don't think that there's so much restriction on Finrod's movements there. Um, we can think through more the um, the relationship between Fingolfin's big push and the Athrobeth. Uh, I can see, it's not that I can't see objections there. Um, I'm just, but do you see what I mean about wanting a gap? Like, this makes Andreth. How old would this make Andreth? I think Maria's like in the middle of editing this live in the document, as we But she'd be older. She'd be at least what? 40s? Maybe, maybe more. More would be nice. 50s? Um, she calls herself a gray-haired. She didn't call herself a crone, but she calls herself a gray-haired old woman in the athro in the text of the athrobeth, right? Um, and again, I think that's part of the. It's part of there needs to be some time that has passed, right? Um, this can't just be. I don't want the athrobeth conversation just to be like, your brother left me the day before yesterday, and I don't know how to cope, right? It's not that. It is like. I have been nursing a decade of bitterness since your brother left me a decade ago, right? That's, and there's, it's a totally different tenor to the conversation. Um, She's dealt with it. She has dealt with it. Um, She's still bitter, but she's, she's coped, right? She's uh, at the age of 60. And now we're talking, now we're talking 30 years after the romance. That's exactly it. Exactly it. Because it's not. It's, it's too late for her. Now, again, that's the point. She's like, we've lost all these decades. Because when Finrod says, hey, like, elves don't do that. He could not have said yes to you. She's going to respond by saying, we had 30 years. If he had, he could've, we could have just been together for 30 years, and then he could have gone to war. Come on. Right? She says that. Right? So, yeah. I like it. I like it. 60. Perfect. Perfect. Perfect um yeah yeah good so Rhianna is uh suggesting nick i think suggested something like this too moving the double wedding back to 11 and making it the b or like the c plot yeah the double wedding it's not like there's a lot of story there. i mean we can make something of it and stuff but you know yeah as long as everybody's you know married and born on time we can kind of put that sort of wherever i think um but uh, by the way, I didn't comment on the fact that Fingolfin, juxta- the juxtaposition of Fingolfin's warning vision with like stuff going bad in Gondolin is kind of cool, right? Um, bad times are ahead, says Fingolfin, as Aeol's corpse is bouncing <laughs> down the cliffside, <laughs> right? Yeah. I have a bad feeling about this, says Fingolfin, as Maeglin starts to like brood and stare at Idril. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. Um, okay. sure, Sure. Um, yeah, well, again, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bow to the, like, again, obviously we have to get people married and born at the right time, but the athrobeth at age 60, that I'm liking, that I'm liking. And honestly, the double wedding, I'm not proposing this, but if the double wedding happened like off screen, I wouldn't cry bitter tears. I mean, I wouldn't like if we just found out that it happened, I'm not saying if we can squeeze it in. Great. I would love to do that. But I'm saying to me, it's less important as, as an event, like as a plot event. Um, it needs to have happened, but it doesn't. I mean, it, we, we can we can do cool things with it, not objecting to it at all. But I'm just saying to me, I don't want that to determine. I don't want to either cramp the timeline, but nor do I want to. Um, the Atherbeth is going to be unnatural in episode 10, um, because again, if if we're having an Andreth who's just on the rebound still, it's it's not the right tone. It's I And the athrobeth to me is uh, a hundred times more important than the double weddings, as far as a plot event is concerned. Maybe a thousand times more important to me than the double weddings. I mean, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, as far as priorities are concerned. Um, uh, yeah, and you're right, Florian, Hurin and Huor are the significant uh, consequences of the double wedding, and um, they're, yeah, they're going to be um, uh, uh, I mean, they're not going to f- be big features uh, in this season, certainly. They'll be on screen, but um, uh, okay, um, Cool. Yes. All right. I'm, I'm keeping everybody super late tonight. I apologize for that really long episode, but this was awesome stuff here. Um, we can come back and answer a few final questions about the la- especially the the Dagor bragalock and how we bring that in and stuff. I want to talk about that, but I don't want to squeeze that into the last 20 seconds of the episode um, uh, of our session, rather. So we'll, we'll start off with the last questions at the very end. Also give you guys some time to Think up some more responses to some of the objections or suggestions that I've made here tonight, uh, so we can we can finalize that next time. Um, but um, in the meantime, oh, we got lots of we didn't get time to go over the. Uh, we can scan this next time, um, but questions for next time. Next time we do want to get to the frame, so we hope to at least begin the discussion of the frame next time, uh, as well. Uh, I have two questions, so. For those of you who have forgotten, it was several months ago. Those of you who are following live, we decided that the frame uh, for this season is going to be Gandalf in Harad. Uh, Gandalf as in Kanus uh, uh, trying to uh, help some of the Haradrim uh, and to resist the um, uh, you know recruitment officers of Sauron as he begins to work through Harad and begin his process there. Um, so my two and questions...
0: And what a dis- that
1: was, too. What, what a what? I, I remember
0: that conversation. That was great. That, that's, that's, a, that's an all-time classic Silmarillion film project like brainstorm right Agreed.
1: There. That is such a fantastic idea. I just love this idea. Um, absolutely. I'm still in love with the Gandalf and Herod idea. So my two questions about it are first uh, that, that I want people to be thinking about in preparation for our, 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 our framed uh, decisions. Um, do we want to focus on the Gandalf and Harad story like, just on the Haradrim, or do we want to involve folks from Gondor? When we were brainstorming it, we had some impulses about like him going back to Gondor and like talking to Faramir and stuff like, do we want to involve the Gondorians in this, or do we just want this to be just Gandalf in the like, this village in Harad and, and, and just focusing on that? So that's my first question. Do we want to just focus on that, or do we want to bring in any of the Gondorian folks as well? My second question, how much of a failure in tragedy do we want the story to be? Do we want this to be like the story of a small success? Do we want this to be a complete tragedy? Does Gandalf leave and everyone's dead behind him? Like everyone's dead and or, you know, converted to the worship of Sauron. Um, what's, wh- what's the, what end point are we going for uh, in this? Because I can see a really tragic ending to this story. Um, I could see a, like a small victory, right? Uh, you know, I could see, we could we could make it a a kind of happy ending right we could give this as an example of you know the like if not for the effort of the like this is what the blue wizards are doing full time right out there in the east and south um and if not for their efforts the armies of sauron would have been twice as big as they were kind of thing right and we could we could show a glimpse of that um with Gandalf here so we could make it a happy story we could make it a complete tragedy we could put it somewhere in the middle um i think we were leaning towards tragedy Uh, next, uh, last in our initial brainstorming. Uh, but anyway, those are the two big things. I think if we can agree on those things, we can figure out the rest of the details. So, all right. Um, uh, thanks everybody for, um, uh, Uh, all of your wonderful contributions tonight. And thanks for all of the work that everybody's been continuing to do. This has been such a fun season. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, Thank you, Marie, for preparing all those wonderful things, uh, all those wonderful visuals uh, for our discussion here today. We'll come back to the family trees next time, uh, as well as finishing up those last few episodes. So I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.